This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bringing a shot up the middle and into center field. 2-9-9-8. First pitch to Miguel. Swinging a shattered bad line drive. Base hit in wow. left. 2-9-9-9. Packs the bat over the right. The 1-1 one, one ground ball. Base hit in the right. Go crazy. 3,000 for Miguel Cabrera. La Leyenda. A tribute to Miguel Cabrera. A five-part series. Here's Daniela Bruce and Dan Dickerson. Welcome, everybody, to La Leyenda Episode 2. I'm Daniela Bruce, and La Leyenda is a series highlighting major milestones and moments in Miguel Cabrera's storied career in Major League Baseball. In Episode 1, we went all the way back to the discovery of a 15-year-old Miguel Cabrera who was just playing baseball in Venezuela at that point. We talked to the scouts, Louis Alhawa and Miguel Garcia, that discovered him when they were working for the Marlins, and they were really the first ones to watch Miguel in the late 90s in Maracay, Venezuela. Alavila even added his unique perspective in getting Miguel to ultimately sign with the Marlins. Today, we're going to pick up right where we left off and take a look at Miguel's short minor league career and, of course, his epic rookie season with the Marlins in 2003 that was capped by a World Series championship. And, of course, what most Tigers fans will be interested in, the trade that ultimately brought Miguel Cabrera to Detroit. I'm now joined by Dan Dickerson, the voice of Tigers Radio. And as we continue to tell Miguel Cabrera's story today, we're going to hear from some outstanding guests, including former teammates such as Mike Lowell, who was Miguel's teammate in Miami on that 2003 World Series team, opponents like Roger Clemens, who pitched against Miguel Cabrera in that 2003 World Series. And he recalls that famous home run that he gave up during that series. And even Dave Dombrowski, who brought Miguel Cabrera to Detroit. But Dan, while you were in Philly, you got to sit down with Dave Dombrowski and recall all of Miguel Cabrera's career, and he actually was heavily involved in getting Miguel Cabrera to Florida, the then Florida Marlins, too. So what did he have to tell you about the young Miguel Cabrera before his time as a Tiger? There's almost nobody better in the business than Dave Dombrowski at telling a story. (laughs) And to, to, you know, hear his reaction the first time he saw Miguel and what that was like, uh, giving all the credit to the scouts and Alavila, who went out and signed him, found him. But, you know, the personal relationships that, that, that we've talked about uh, being key in that. And then to hear him describe uh, in great detail, and it's, a, it's such a good story, and I think fans are really going to enjoy hearing it, uh, going into those winter meetings. I mean, think about it. The winter meetings used to be a place where deals were done. Mm-hmm. And everybody looked forward to the winter meetings because you never knew what kind of blockbuster uh, might be pulled off. One year it was Miguel Cabrera, it was Max Scherzer the next. We don't see that as much anymore, but it was like that back in the day. And here his, you know, setting it up, the winter meetings that were going to change the course of this franchise's history uh, is fascinating. And it's, uh, like I said, I always enjoyed when Dave was here, we'd always have the Tiger Fest 
one-hour Q&A sessions. And just to hear how the winner unfolded through his eyes and how he described the market or what the moves that he made. Uh, again, he's just he's the very best. And you understand why he's so good and why he's been in this game for so long. And lucky for all of our listeners, they're going to hear the majority of this interview in today's episode with Dave Dombrowski talking about Miguel Cabrera, not only in Miami, but obviously that big trade to Detroit. And like I mentioned, he really got Miguel to Miami, to Major League Baseball. But Dave was in Detroit when Miguel won that World Series. Did he recall that at all with you, just being able to see that? But it kind of happened from afar, even though his fingerprints were all over it. Yeah, it happened from afar. And uh, he just, you know, so really... Because we were talking about was it that one moment when you realized you know that this guy is maybe heading to the Hall of Fame? He said, yes. you know, those early years it was all from afar. Yeah. But yeah, there were those games, and I think probably the World Series was probably one of those moments where it's like, oh, this is pretty special. Yeah. But yeah, he was in Detroit at the time that he debuted in Florida. Miguel Cabrera signed his amateur free agent deal with the Marlins in July of 1999 at the age of just 16 years old. And even though his talent was evident, he was nervous to move to the U.S. and begin his journey to the big leagues. I mean, I was uh, only 60 years old when I came in first time to to USA. Um, I was a little nervous because uh, uh, Back in the day, I don't speak English. Now I don't speak English either. <laughs> You're way better now. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so it was exciting because it was a dream coming through because I always dream like one day playing the in the big league and they gave me opportunity in 1999 when they signed me in, uh, in Maracay, where I live. So it was a tremendous experience because my dream, like studying be alive you know so it was exciting well we know miguel cabrera improved not only in the english language but on the baseball field as well and while he may have been nervous he adjusted quickly and he adjusted well josh wilson is currently a scout for the tigers but back at that time he was a teammate of miggy's in the marlins minor league system from the years 2000 to 2003 and he remembers the future hall of famer making his debut in the system i should probably go all the way back to the beginning because Miguel and I, I think signed the same year so he was actually 17 though and could not get a work visa so Miggy came over and it was even in the Gulf Coast League is when we met you know he was there I was playing shortstop he was unable to play so you know first impressions Miggy did not like me very much because I was the guy on the field and he could not you know he couldn't go out there. He he was still too young to actually play. So there were some dirty looks there at the beginning. So it was kind of funny. I I like to rag him about that every time I see him. But uh, you know from there it was it was evident. You know the the talent that he had. You know it was certainly got to be a lot more fun. Two thousand one. You know we didn't get to play together that following year in two thousand. But then in two thousand one. Miggy kicked me over to third base, so he started playing shortstop. And so, you know, I was the one, you know, sulking in the corner because he got to play short and I had to move for him. So, uh, yeah, he kind of got me back there for a little while. But, um, you know, it was it was certainly a lot of fun. I mean, he was very talented and, you know, he could actually play shortstop too when he was younger. I mean, he moved well. He had such good hands and he did some extremely impressive things, you know, those couple of years. Well, if you're going to lose your position to somebody, at least it was Miguel Cabrera in Josh's case. And Josh continued to be impressed with the young Miguel Cabrera. And like many others, he was specifically impressed with Cabrera's swing. You know, I, I can recall, 
seeing him swing a bat for the first time in the batting cages down in Melbourne, Florida, he was really, he had a really strong push off his back leg. He was a completely different looking hitter. You wouldn't recognize him now. I mean, he's so quiet in the box, you know, and as he really developed, I mean, he, he developed a really, really just quiet approach and trusted his strength and his swing. But when he was younger, I mean, he really generated a lot of movement with his legs and the ball just, it exploded off his bat. I mean, for a 17 year old kid, I mean, he was hitting the ball harder than any of the rest of us, you know, for sure. We spend a lot of time talking about Miguel Cabrera in the box and at the plate, but Wilson also remembers some of the defensive plays that Miguel Cabrera could make. He used to do these things in just an infield practice. We'd be taking ground balls, you know, say in Kane County and, you know, our manager, Russ Moore, would be hitting the fungos and he'd accidentally hit Miguel a line drive and Miguel would just, you know, look at him like, hey, what are you doing? You know, looking Russ right in the face and then he'd just wing it over to first base, no look, and he'd hit Adrian Gonzalez right in the chest. And you're going like, what? And this wasn't just like one time. He would do this. You'd see him do this every now and again. And you're like, and he does it so nonchalantly. And you're thinking this guy's just on a different level. He's got such feel for his body, such, you know, such athleticism. Plus he's so big and strong. Yeah, some of those things were memories that stand out of just him, you know, being a little bit different than everybody else. The talent that Josh describes, Miguel Cabrera clearly had it, and Josh isn't the only one that describes that, but it's only part of what it takes. Josh added that Miguel Cabrera also had the passion. Every day. Every day he's making people laugh, having more fun than anybody else, you know, whether it's because is just who he was or he kind of, you know, he knew where he was headed. That was probably part of it too. I think he had a belief in himself that he knew exactly where he was going and how he was going to get there. And I mean, you know, he worked hard too. I mean, that guy, he get in the cage and, and he hit, he loved to hit. You'd find him in there all the time, just taking swing after swing after swing, just trying to perfect it. And yeah, he definitely, he had a passion for it that, that not many guys have. It's a mix of that passion and natural talent that helped Miguel Cabrera excel in the minor leagues. From 2000 to 2002, Miggy made his way from rookie low A to high A ball with Kane County, where he spent a lot of time with Josh Wilson. In 2002, Cabrera made the jump to high A Jupiter, where his power was continuing to improve and develop. In 2003, 20-year-old Miguel played his final minor league games with the double A Carolina, and in June of 2003, the big day, finally came, Miguel Cabrera got the call to the show. And in the words of his teammate Josh Wilson, his rookie season would be one of the most impressive displays of offense he's ever seen. Miggy, you could see the talent. You knew he was good. Those first couple years in A-ball, for being how young he was, you know, he kind of held his own. But that year in 2003, it was, I mean, it's still the most spectacular, impressive display of offense that I've ever been able to be witness to on a daily basis. I mean, it was, it was just unreal. I mean, you couldn't get the guy out. You couldn't get him to chase a pitch out of the zone. He could drive it out all parts of the ballpark. And I look at those numbers and it, it's like unreal how good the numbers are, but I look at him and I'm like, I think he was better than that. <laughs> it was really, he was so good. And that was just the beginning for Miguel Cabrera. Coming up on La Leyenda, we'll look at his storybook Major League debut that ended in his first career walk-off, along with his impressive rookie season in Major League Baseball. We'll be right back with more on La Leyenda. 
Welcome back to La Leyenda. I'm Daniela Bruce. We left off talking about Miguel Cabrera's time in the minor leagues. From 2000 to 2003, Miggy worked his way through the Marlins minor league system from rookie ball to the AA Carolina Mudcats. By mid-June of 2003, Miggy was slashing 365, 429, and 609 in the Southern League. Despite the fact that Cabrera had yet to play a single game in AAA, the prospect of his bat in the Marlins lineup was simply too enticing for front office staff to ignore. 20-year-old Miggy was about to get the call that every minor leaguer dreams about. It just so happened that Miggy's arrived on a rare day when his bat had gone quiet. I sat down with Miguel to talk about that special moment, and he explained why he was on the edge that day after being pulled mid-game. Yeah, it was kind of kind of like, I, 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 I want to say weird because they take me out to a game. I was like... 0 for 2 with two double plays, Ramon double play, and they take me out. And I say, wow. It was like, I was kind of nervous because they can take me out and don't say anything. After the game, they say me, you're going to play late field tomorrow in Miami. I was kind of shocked. I called my family and, um, and tell them they come into a big league. It was it was awesome moment. What a whirlwind that must have been for Miguel from thinking he's getting pulled from the game for playing poorly, but actually getting the call up to the major leagues. And of course, he thought that moment was awesome, but he had no idea what was in store for him the following day. On June 20th, 2003, Cabrera started his first major league baseball game in left field for the Florida Marlins. It was the first of over 2,700 games and counting that Miggy would play in his storied 21-year career. At that moment, though, Cabrera was nine and a half years younger than the average Major League Baseball player. His peers had nearly a decade of experience on him. Despite the large age disparity, one person who wasn't surprised to see Miguel in the lineup that day was Florida third baseman Mike Lowell. Lowell, who played 13 years in the majors, three of them with Miggy on the Marlins, now works as an analyst for MLB Network. He sat down with us to explain why Cabrera's youthful entrance to the league came as no surprise to him. It stemmed from the first time he watched Miguel take batting practice. I think I met Miggy the first time uh, he actually took batting practice with the major league team. And he must have been 16, 17. It was during his first first year. You know, the, the physicality hadn't come in, but I was very impressed with his hands. It looks like he was barreling the ball up very often. It was just batting practice. You know, you get a young kid in a big league park, he really didn't seem too phased with the environment. So I was pretty impressed with that. And you could see that once he filled out physically, he was going to be a, possibly a different kind of player. As a four-time All-Star and a Silver Slugger in 2003, Lowell could see there was something special about his new teammate's swing. Well, he had two things. You know, his swing, he had the ability to let the ball get deep, you know, and he, he had this ability to not only let the ball get deep, but to use the right side of the field. You know, I, I always marveled at how he could take a pitch in or third and hit it to right center with damage. You know, not, not a lot of guys can do that. There are a lot of guys that can hit the ball that way, but not with power. They can't get in the gap, and they can't hit it over the right, right field wall or right center field wall. So that was something that was very, very different, and I just felt like at a young age, he had this ability to recognize pitches and to be so balanced at the plate. You know, And I think when you have that good balance, it enabled that God-given talent of a be having a good natural swing to be able to take advantage of the whole field. And you know, that's what I noticed. He, he, Early on, there seemed to be, when he's going well, there really wasn't a weakness in his approach. 
Still, we all know that prospective minor league talent and proven major league talent are two different things. Those waiting to see the ladder from Miguel Cabrera didn't have to toil long, though. One might describe Miggy's June 20th, 2003 debut as storybook, foreshadowing a taste of the excitement he would provide baseball for the next 20 years. After a disappointing start in 2003, the Florida Marlins parted ways with both their manager and pitching coach on May 12th. When Cabrera received his call-up over a month later, Florida had just pulled themselves out of last place in the NL East. With a record of 35-39, and 39, sitting 14 games back of the NL-leading 47-win Braves, the Marlins desperately needed a spark. And on Friday, June 20th, 2003, as the Marlins played the first of three against the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, they would get just that. Tied 1-1 and heading into the bottom of the 11th inning, Rays reliever Al Levine took over on the mound to face the 6, 7, and 8 hitters in the Marlins lineup. Florida first baseman Derek Lee hit a fly ball to right for out number one, and then shortstop Alex Gonzalez doubled on a ground ball down the left field line. That's when a 20-year-old prospect from Maracay stepped to the plate. Cabrera was 0-4 on the night, but as Miggy would demonstrate throughout his career, sometimes you only need one pitch to change the whole story. And the pitcher not made the play. Hit to center. Ball Deli going back. Still going back. Out of here. Out of here. Welcome to the big leagues. Just go to the deepest part of the park, straightaway center field. Wow. First big league hit. First big league home run. Two RBIs and a game winner. Fastball, middle of the plate. Solid swings. We talked about the fact that he's had good swings all night, but had yet to get a hit. So he took care of all the firsts. Home run, extra base hit, RBIs, game winner. Get them all out of the way. Why not take care of a whole bunch of firsts in just one swing? As teammate Mike Lowell noted, it wasn't just the 3-1 walk-off win that was magical. Well, Miggy's debut was special for two reasons. First of all, his first hit was a walk-off extra inning home run. And now we're going back to old Marlin Stadium. We're just left of center field. It's about 423. And his home run goes literally right there. And, you know, when, when that ball goes out, I remember saying to myself, man, this kid at 20 years old just did something that I haven't even ever done in batting practice. You know, and I said, he's got to be something special to be able to have, you know, not only that effortless swing, but that power that really comes with it in a big moment to come through. So I'm sure he remembers his first thing because it was pretty special and most other people do as well. Sure, that was a special moment, but Cabrera and the 2003 Marlins were far from finished. By the end of June, the team had reached that 500 mark, sitting at 42 and 42. By the end of July, they were 10 games over 500. When the regular season concluded on September 28th, the team that replaced its manager back in May had won 91 games. They also became an incredibly tight-knit unit along the way. Very connected team. You know, a lot of teams, pitchers don't hang out with position players too much, and this was very different. We'd be going out to dinner, you know, 10, 15 deep, and it was from bullpen guys to starting pitchers to bench players, pinch hitters to, you know, everyday players. So it was, 
there's a really cool feeling that to, to have that cohesiveness as a unit. Veteran players like catcher Ivan Pudge Rodriguez and outfielder Jeff Conine were complemented by a bevy of 20-somethings in the lineup like Luis Castillo, Juan Pierre, Derek Lee, and Mike Lowell, as well as on the mound in Josh Beckett and Mark Redman. Now add two electrifying rookies into that mix, 20-year-old Miguel Cabrera and 21-year-old lefty starting pitcher Dontrell Willis. I kind of linked the young guys as two guys, and it was Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis because they got called up because... Most of us were, I would say, within the first four or five years of our career. So I, I think as a whole, we were all kind of inexperienced. But I, I think that infusion of energy and talent that we got, I mean, Dontrell started, I think he was like 7 or 8 no, And Miggy came in, he was hitting from day one. So we, we felt like we picked up two real good pieces in the middle of the season when, you know, other teams maybe are fighting to make deals at trade deadlines and, and trying to strengthen their team that way. So the dynamic was we, we felt... We were a young team. We just didn't really understand how good we were, but we felt like on any given day we had the chance to beat whoever we were playing. The young guys certainly helped write Florida's winning formula in 2003. Willis won 14 games, including two complete game shutouts, while posting a 3.30 ERA and earning himself NL Rookie of the Year honors. Cabrera, meanwhile, hit 2.68, 3.25, and 4.68 over 87 games played. He also knocked in 12 long balls, including his first multi-homer game on July 1st. Four hits, two doubles, two home runs. He came into the game 0 for 17. He's been working on an adjustment a little closer to the plate. He reacts to that fastball and launches. By their final regular season game, the 2003 Florida Marlins had turned a disappointing start into a wild card playoff bid. Lacking postseason experience on their roster, the month of September was particularly crucial for the team, Lowell remembers. Besides maybe Pudge Rodriguez and Jeff Conine later, we really didn't have a lot of guys with postseason experience. So we felt like we were kind of learning the way to play in the postseason uh, basically at the end of September. And I, I thought that brought us together as a team. We had a certain style of play where we used our speed at the top of the lineup. We had great pitching and good defense, and we felt like that was a pretty good formula to, to possibly make a run. But just how far into October could that formula take them? The team's first test was set for September 30th in Game 1 of the NLDS against the 100-win NL West champion San Francisco Giants. Up next on La Leyenda, the Marlins make an improbable run at the World Series and Miguel Cabrera makes plenty of noise in his inaugural postseason. Plus, one of the most famous World Series at-bats courtesy of two MLB greats, Roger Clemens versus Miggy, the old guard versus the new. We hear from both Roger and Miggy on the epic showdown in Game 4 of the World Series. It's all ahead on La Leyenda.
Welcome back to La Leyenda, a five-part series highlighting major moments and milestones in Miguel Cabrera's career. I'm Daniela Bruce, and so far in this episode, we've delved into Miguel Cabrera's rapid minor league ascent, his memorable 2003 MLB debut, and the impressive rookie season that followed. But the story would be incomplete without recounting the Marlins' impressive 2003 postseason run. Florida fans were already privy to Miggy's talent. Several opposing pitchers, coaches, and media members had also taken taken notice. But for the first time, the eyes of fans across the globe were trained on Cabrera thanks to the fall classic. Other 20-year-olds might crumble under the pressure of hitting cleanup in their first postseason appearance, but it was becoming more and more apparent that Miggy was simply built different. Former Marlins teammate Mike Lowell explained why the moment was never too big for a wise beyond his years Miguel Cabrera. His mental approach was very advanced. You know, I, I still remember in the NLCS and even the NLDS, I, I felt like we thrust him in the middle of the lineup. He was hitting cleanup. And I felt like he was determining the at-bats against, you know, polished veteran guys. You know, you see him, you know, kind of flail maybe at a, at a slider. And then it was almost like he was setting up the pitcher to make him throw the same pitch again. And he'd get it and do damage, you know. So I felt like his approach was he could make adjustments pitch to pitch and I always I always think young guys it usually comes at bat to at bat or from game to game but from pitch to pitch it really makes some of those guys elite and I thought I don't know he had that special ability to do that at such a young age and really you could be young but you could be seasoned he didn't even have 100 games under his belt so I, that 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 approach and that commanding of the at bat was something that was pretty impressive. The first chance for Miggy to flex his skills in postseason play arrived on the final day of September in 2003. The Marlins opened the NLDS against the San Francisco Giants. During the regular season, the Giants won 100 games. They also had a little someone named Barry Bonds in their lineup. Maybe you've heard of him. At age 39, Bonds led the league in OPS for a third consecutive season. He won his sixth MVP award and his 11th silver slugger. Keeping Bonds back quiet and the rest of the San Francisco roster in check was a tall order, as evidenced by the Marlins getting shut out in the first game of the series, 0-2 at Pacific Bell Park. But as they demonstrate throughout the 2003 postseason, the Marlins weren't phased by the prospect of trailing or falling behind. They responded with three straight victories against the Giants to take the NLDS. The final two games were decided by one run. Barry Bonds hit just 222 in the series. Meanwhile, Miggy continued to show up in big moments. Cabrera helped seal the series victory with a four-hit game in the final contest. And now the pitch to Cabrera is a line drive to right field ahead. Cruz is going to get to it. They're going to wave in Rodriguez. Here's Cruz's throw. It's a good one. And safe at the plate is Rodriguez as the ball gets away. And now coming in to score behind Rodriguez is Lee. And it's a 7-5 game. Miggy's go-ahead hit in the bottom of the eighth inning would end up being a game winner. The Marlins went on to win 7-6 and clinch the NLDS. Next up was the NLCS series with the Chicago Cubs. This memorable matchup went to Game 7 despite the Marlins falling behind three games to one. Miggy added another milestone with his first postseason home run in Game 1. The Marlins were down 4-0 in the top of the third, two spots ahead of Cabrera in the lineup. Pudge Rodriguez hit a two-run jack to tighten the gap, 
And with two outs, Miggy added his own demonstration of power against Carlos Zambrano. He's allowed three runs so far on the three-run home run here by Pudge Rodriguez. And that ball blistered into left center field, and Cabrera has tied the game. A three-run home run by Rodriguez, a game-tying solo shot from Miguel Cabrera. Juan Encarnacion made it three home runs to give the Marlins a 5-4 lead heading into the bottom of the third. Florida went on to win the game 9-8 in 11 frames. In game two, Cabrera continued to show off his bat with an opposite field home run off Mark Pryor. But also, Dusty doesn't want to have to use too many guys in the pen either. That ball lifted and driven into deep right center field, and Cabrera has gone to the seats. Miggy's blast wasn't enough for the Marlins to grab a second win. In fact, Florida lost three consecutive games and had their backs against the wall going into game five. Josh Beckett helped shut out the Cubs 4-0 in the final game in Miami. Then Florida responded to the pressure once again with an 8-3 victory to tie the series. It all culminated in an October 15th Game 7 showdown. 27-year-old righty Kerry Wood was on the mound for Chicago. An all-star in 2003, Wood led Major League Baseball in strikeouts with 266 and strikeouts per nine with 11.3. Despite a formidable opponent on the mound, the Marlins put two on ahead of Miggy in the first inning. Batting cleanup, Miguel Cabrera stepped to the plate and five pitches later, he stunned Cubs fans into silence with the three-run blast. Runners lead. Carrie Wood is set. Here's the one and two. And Cabrera drives a ball high and deep to left center. It's up, up and away. A three-run home run for Miguel Cabrera to shock the Wrigley faithful and Carrie Wood in the first inning. Three to nothing Marlins. The Marlins ultimately won Game 7 by a final score of 9-6, which meant rookie Miguel Cabrera and the Florida Marlins were moving on to the World Series to take on the heavy favorites, the New York Yankees. For the first time in the new millennium, the Marlins appeared in the postseason and now the World Series. The Yankees, meanwhile, were in the midst of their ninth consecutive postseason appearance. Florida was the clear and obvious underdog from the jump, which made their 3-2 victory in Game 1 at Yankee Stadium, no less, all the more impressive. The evil empire didn't take too kindly to that. They responded with two resounding 6-1 victories in Games 2 and 3, fueled by excellent starting pitching performance from Andy Pettit and Mike Messina. On October 22nd, Game 4 was underway at Pro Players Stadium in front of nearly 66,000 fans. 41-year-old Roger Clemens was on the mound for the Yankees in a game that, at that time, he believed might be his last. Really, uh, it, was, it was crazy because it was, I was going into what I thought was going to be my last season and my last game pitch there in Miami. And I remember, you know, throwing the first pitch and the stadium lighting up with light bulbs and flashes and photo taking. And uh, I tried to settle in a little bit there in the first inning. And I believe it was the first inning. A couple guys got on. And, uh, and then here's just a bat against this kid that I really don't know a lot about. What did Clemens know about the young Miguel Cabrera? Yeah, it was kind of, for me, being in the American League for so long, um, it kind of reminded me of a King Griffey Jr. when Jr. came up and uh, all the talk about how great of a hitter he was. So uh, I kind of had a feel that that was the type of dynamic player that Miggy was going to be. We heard that he had power, good power to all, you know, all fields. But again, once you get to the World Series, there's definitely other guys that stood out on that team 
when you have a younger player like Miggy was at the time. Clemens' potential retirement after such a remarkable career made for an exciting World Series storyline. But so did the Marlins rookie, Miguel Cabrera. When the two met in the first inning, 60 feet, 6 inches, and 21 years between them, the stage was set for one of the most epic showdowns in World Series history. In the bottom of the first inning, Clemens made quick work of the Marlins' first two hitters, putting away Juan Pierre and Luis Castillo with ground outs. With two outs, Pudge Rodriguez singled to right field after working a full count, and that's when the hero of our story strolled to the plate. In the first pitch of the at-bat, Clemens threw a fastball up and in on Cabrera. The chin music was not appreciated, as evidenced by Cabrera's immediate death stare response. So for Roger Clemens, our wow. Going for 20 at 41. If he wins this game, it will be his 20th win of the season. And that's that we were alluding to Sandy Koufax, not since Koufax. Now another one up and in to Cabrera. Cabrera giving him a stare. Roger Clemens, 21 years older than the right-hander. Clemens was an expert in crafting displays of intimidation, especially in big moments. And in this one, the veteran face of baseball was staring down the new. Mike Lowell explained why Clemens chose to make an up-and-in statement on his first pitch. Well, all the excitement uh, in Game 4 was that it was Roger Clemens' last start. And, you know, here comes Miguel Cabrera up with a couple guys on base. And I think in typical Roger Clemens fashion, he, wa he wants to take advantage and show that he is the boss of the at-bat. And uh, he came in really up and in on, on Miggy. You know, it was typical that, he, that that intimidation factors would made Clemens so good. The mind games are a huge part of baseball. Can you get inside a guy's head and undermine his confidence successfully? Many a batter faltered in the face of Rockets mound presence. But on this particular day, Miguel Cabrera came prepared. I mean, I was prepared for that moment because, like I say, my demons, uh, they prepared me me for that that at bat because he gonna they say he gonna pick you uh they, they, he gonna try to intimidate you don't don't let him to do that and when he do that stare at him it's why i it's why i do that because my team tell me what's gonna happen and tell me like you okay if you do that ahead 1-0 the next pitch miggy sees from clemens is a fastball high and out he swings and misses for strike one one on two out one ball no strikes Clemens now goes to one of the most devastating pitches in his arsenal, the splitter. This thing was lethal. The 20-year-old waits, one ball, one strike, and a late swing, strike two. The 1-1 drops out of the zone and into the dirt as Miggy attempts to put a bat on it. Clemens attempts to use the splitter again for the putaway. Now he sits and watches as Clemens misses with ball two. But Cabrera learns from his previous mistake and lays off. Now 2-2, Clemens opts to throw a two-seamer in on Miguel. And a 2-2 two -two to Cabrera. Miggy fouls it away to stay alive. In pitch six of the at-bat, Miggy rips another two-seamer down the left field line, but it stays foul. That is foul. Finally, the battle between these two greats reaches a crescendo. Once again, it's 2-2, and Clemens throws a fastball high in the zone. And this time, Miggy is all over it and launches it for an opposite field home run. Into right field, back is Garcia at the wall, home run Cabrera, 2-0 Florida.
remember that first pitch up and in? The 20-year-old just showed tremendous strength going out to right. There is nothing that makes a hitter feel better than being knocked off the plate and then hitting a home run. Nothing. Miguel put the Marlins on the board with his two-run shot. Though it would take 12 innings and a little walk-off home run magic, courtesy of Alex Gonzalez, Florida would go on to win game four by a score of four to three. Roger Clemens was generous enough to join us and talk about that famous showdown. Really, really good at bat, actually. I had forgotten how many you know pitches I had thrown to him and the battle that went on. I just remember that uh, I did come inside with a fastball up and in on him just to try and get him out off the outside corner because that's where I was going to try and put him away. I ended up throwing a couple really good pitches away and some, and I, I believe two really good split-fingered fastballs, which I had. It was a devastating pitch for me at that part of my career. And Miggy did a wonderful job of just barely fouling them off. Then I think it got 3-2, and I, threw, I tried to throw a two-seam fastball off the plate and run it back over the corner. And he got barrel on it and shot it like in the third row in, in right field. And I was like, you know, first of all, I couldn't believe that he was able to hang in there on that bat. It was a tremendous at bat for him. And number two is once he hit it, uh, I didn't realize that he had that type of opposite field power at that time at that young age. But uh, it was great at bat. I remember stepping on the, off the mound while he was rounding the bases and thinking, you know, this is not the way I want to go out on my last start. So I, I think I ended up uh, getting it together and went maybe six or seven innings. The game was tied when I came out. And I think it was an extra inning game. The, the Marlins might have won that game. But that was a, a great at bat. And when I when uh, when I see Miggy, I always remind him, you're welcome for jump-starting your career. From Miggy's perspective, the moment means even more now because in his mind, Clemens is a Hall of Famer. It was like tremendous experience to face Roger Clemens. And the World Series because it's a Hall of Fame to me. After Miggy's heroics in Game 4 and the extra innings win, the Marlins and Yankees were tied 2-2 in the World Series. Florida won the next two games to clinch the second World Series title in franchise history. It's hard to top an impressive rookie season that is capped off with a World Series win, but over the next few seasons, Miggy would continue to add accomplishments to his resume. By 2007, however, the Marlins had hit a rough patch and the team was looking to trade its young superstar. Lucky for Detroit fans, president and COO of the Tigers, Dave Dombrowski, was very familiar with Miguel Cabrera and his talent. Dombrowski was an integral part of building the 2003 World Series Marlin team before departing for Detroit in 2001. Up next on La Leyenda, Dan Dickerson sits down with Dombrowski to talk about the trade that changed the course of Tigers history. Welcome back to La Leyenda. I'm Daniela Bruce. On December 4th, 2007, arguably the biggest trade in Tigers history was completed. Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis were headed to Detroit in exchange for a large group of young players highlighted by Andrew Miller and Cameron Mabin. Dan Dickerson sat down with former Tigers president and COO Dave Dombrowski to discuss the blockbuster trade and how he knew Cabrera was talented from the first moment he saw him. So your first impression when you see him in the world workout? Yes. Was wild. Yes, no question. Well, you look at a 16-year-old individual that's hitting the ball out of the ballpark all over the ballpark. Um, and of course, at that point, he was big, he was strong, but he wasn't heavy. He was very thin at that time. He signed as a shortstop and played uh, in the infield when he first came up. So it was a situation where um, 
you couldn't believe how the ball jumped off his bat, um, the way his timing was at that point, the liveliness of the bat, the power, and this was for a 16-year-old individual. So let's fast forward to your time in Detroit, go to the World Series in 2006, uh, 88 win season the next year, and now you're going into the off-season, heading toward the 2008 uh, season, and the winter meetings used to be a very time of hot activity. <laughs> you, you made some deals, and there used to be a lot of deals done. It, it's changed through the years. Going into the winter meetings that changed the course of this franchise's history, uh, it seemed like, the, from everything that I've been told, that there were rumors that maybe Miguel would be available. Tell us, from your standpoint, what your thinking was going into the winter meetings, and then we'll talk about when did all of a sudden the trade talks begin. Well, it's a great story, really, and it's, there's a, a couple tears to it because, I mean, everybody knew Miguel Cabrera was one of the best players in baseball at that time, that he had a bright, bright future ahead of him. Oh, he was great then, an all-star, and um, a young age at that point. It was very unusual to be at that age with experience. And what had come out in the wintertime was that it was a situation where the Marlins weren't going to be able to sign him to a long-term contract from a dollar perspective, so he was available to be traded. Now, we knew that at the time, but also at that point, we had a good club, we had good players. Our budget was pretty much where it was at that time and really didn't have any financial wiggle room from my perspective. And I'll, I remember vividly, I was at home uh, with my family and uh, was around the, a little bit before Thanksgiving and my phone rings, and it was uh, Mike Illich, Mr. I, calling me. And he no, never called me at home, right? I mean, just, it, was, it would be an utmost emergency, but it was a rare, and my phone rings. I said, I better get it. It's Mr. I calling me, so I, I get the phone. And he says, uh, let me ask you a question. He says, uh, this guy with Miami, uh, Miguel Cabrera, um, is he a player that you would like to have? And I said, oh, Mr. I, you'd love to have Miguel Cabrera. He's a one of the best players in the game of baseball is going to be a star for years to come. But I said, I'm really at my budget at this time, so that's why I really haven't discussed it with you. And in typical Mr. I fashion, he said, well, you let me worry about the budget. Let's see if we can end up getting him or not. Fine. So we lobbed in a phone call to, uh, to Miami at that time, and it was a situation where um, we had expressed uh, some, probably at that time it was Florida Marlins, I keep calling them mine, but Florida Marlins at that time, and uh, lobbed in a phone call and they were talking to different clubs and it was a situation where it was apparent that they thought they had a deal going somewhere else. And it was rumored at that time to be the Angels. So when we went to the winter meetings on that weekend um, and got there on a Sunday, really thought that he was going to the Angels. That was when I had left on, last I had heard on Saturday that he was going to the Angels. And when I came in, I remember on Sunday, uh, Al Avila had received a phone call from somebody from Florida at that point and said, you know, are you still interested in Cabrera? And uh, the answer was, of course, we are interested. And he said, well, the other thing doesn't look like it's going to work. So um, we're interested in talking again about it. So that's where things started to move pretty quickly, actually, at that time. I remember I picked up the phone, called Mr. I again to keep him in the loop because all of a sudden we were going to make an acquisition. And um, he said, fine, keep me in the loop. Let's see what happens. And so they ended up making us a proposal of what they would take in that deal. 
I remember it was the six players, and of course the two key guys were Cameron Mayburn, who I know works for UL this time, <laughs> and, and Andrew Miller, who were both top ten prospects in the game of baseball at that time, plus four other players. And we had some debates back and forth, and the two key guys were always Mayburn and Miller. The other guys we liked some, but they weren't deal breakers for us. And we talked about it internally, what we should do, how we should do it, and we were in a position where we said, well, first of all, Mr. I gave the clearance. We had worked out and talked to our CFO at that time, Steve Quinn, and how we might produce some more revenue and how we could pay for this contract and, and do that. So, Because we thought we'd pick up our sales, which we did. So we put a lot of work in a very short time period on it. And then it was a situation where, even though we talked to I said, well, let's not change the terms of the deal at all. They proposed it. Let's accept it. So these were the six players. Yes, that from they. The get-go. Yes, and we had to. And I said, you know what? Because I don't. Let's not let them get anybody else involved in the bidding here for Cabrera. They've offered us this. Let's do it. We don't. Really, even though we like these other guys, we feel that they're replaceable. The two key guys are going to be have to be part of the deal no matter what. So maybe you'd trade it, exchange this guy for that guy of the fifth or sixth player. But we felt if we ended up accepting the deal, then they would make it. So we did. We ended up uh, accepting the deal at that point. And the thing, though, that became tricky on it, as I remember as the time went on, is that, um, of course, medicals had to be exchanged. The doctors and trainers, the way the meetings were going, had already been leaving the meetings. So we had to trace down the doctors, Dr. Canal. Um, and so for them to look at the information, and so were theirs. And they came uh, up with a little bit of concern when a couple of the players, nothing major, but there was something with Miller they wanted to check and something with Maven that they wanted to check. But it took about 24 hours to finally get the uh, medicals approved. And during that time period, we never left our room. I mean, we just basically would say, nobody's leaving the room. They went to sleep. Don't wander the lobby. Don't talk to other people. We don't want any of this to fall apart by any means. So all our guys did it. They came back. We hung around. And then finally, when we got the clearance, we jumped up and down and high-fived everybody, and um, including Jim Leland at that point. So we were all absolutely thrilled. Mr. I kind of had a simple philosophy, but it, it worked, right? People come to see stars. Yes. Steve Eisman was with the Red Wings for 20 years. Miguel Cabrera, they come to see stars. Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, or however you want to put it. But can you just talk about the impact of having a superstar bat in a lineup? Now, you obviously surrounded him with nice pieces, but the impact that that bat can have on the lineup up and down the lineup, how it changes everything. Well, it changed everything tremendously when you had that type of player because you're talking about a superstar. You're talking about a player that can lead the league in hitting, which he did. Drives in runs, hits home runs, hits doubles, um, does everything, knows how to win. So it's a situation where all of a sudden people, of course, slide to different spots a little a step down in the lineup a lot of times. But when you have young players, too, here's a guy that likes the pressure, puts the pressure on his shoulders. So when he comes through and takes that pressure off, it makes everybody just that little bit better, a little bit more relaxed because here at some point this guy's coming up and is going to win a ball game for you and he did it so many times. It wasn't just something that you talked about, I mean he just showed it. So it took the pressure off the team completely, changed the outlook of the club and of course changed the, the future of the team. And changed the future of the team it did. On the next episode of La Leyenda, we'll dive into some of the most exciting seasons in recent Tigers history led by Miguel Cabrera. 
We'll hear from Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, and Jim Leland on those legendary seasons, including Cabrera's Triple Crown in 2012 and back-to-back MVP seasons. I'm Daniela Bruce, and thank you for listening to Episode 2 of La Leyenda. We'll see you next time. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.